Good morning, Highland. Last week, as Sue said, Jason uh, introduced us to this series that we're in called Marked. And um, we are journeying through the book of James, and he brought us through most of chapter one. Um, Several weeks ago, when he asked me uh, if I could speak this week, eagerly I said yes, but it wasn't until a couple weeks ago when I started studying hard for this that I realized that uh, this would be one of the most challenging parts of Scripture for me to read. And um, James, uh, what I think is talking about this morning as Christ followers, is one of the weightiest topics that we can hear. And ultimately, I think we're going to see that this uh, part of Scripture creates a lot of tension with us. And the tension that we often feel is the tension between what we say we believe and what shows up in our relationships. It's the tension between what we say we believe and what impacts our living. And it's the tension between ultimately what we say we believe and what we do. And so knowing that, I confess to you all this morning that this is an area of my life that is being transformed. So as I speak to you, the application for you is no different than me. As you wrestle, I wrestle. As you doubt, I doubt. And as you're convicted, so am I. But I think in this tension, there is great opportunity for us. And I think if we're honest, there is great tension for all of us between what we say we believe and what we do. After all, it's a lot easier to speak than it is to do. It's a lot easier to pontificate than it is to move. And it's much easier to discuss ideals than it is to get dirty. Perhaps this is why James is writing to us in the first place. So we know that James was the brother of Jesus, and apparently, as I've read, he was a just man. He was known as James the Just. He was obedient. He had lots of zeal, and he was dedicated to prayer. And I think for these reasons, if anyone had the position and the practice to write to us, it was James. And we're going to see that ultimately James is pushing us from people who simply say that we are Christ followers to people whose beliefs actually match up with what we do. And I don't know your backgrounds this morning. I don't know everybody in this room. Um, I don't know what your relationship is like with the God of this universe. From some of you, it may be from parental pressure. Some of you, it could be, it could have started from pulpit pressure. That was my story. For some of you, it could have been uh, years of wandering in the wrong places and only to find him being revealed. Some of you may not even understand what I mean when I say your relationship with the God of this universe. And so regardless of your story, we're going to see that James rather boldly says that we shouldn't be too certain about our faith if what we say we believe doesn't match up to the way we live, if what we believe isn't infiltrating our life. Ultimately, he's inviting us to close the gap from our belief and our works. And the reason for that is, one of the reasons for that is that the world will see our authenticity. One of the values uh, of Highland is authenticity. And what I mean by that is 
we mean that we believe what we say and we do what we believe. Being authentic allows us to be real with ourselves. It allows us to be real with God and it allows us to be real with everybody around us. So this being said, I want to jump right into James and pick up in James 119. This is right where uh, Jason left off. James writes, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must be all quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. So we're told to listen quickly. And then he continues, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. So James introduces a theme that's found throughout the book. And that's being a doer of the word. That's practicing the word. It's exercising what we read. It's moving on what we hear. And it's being an active part of the body of Christ. And see, James doesn't devalue listening. In fact, he actually says we need to be quick to listen. So if you're thinking, you know, good, well, I don't like reading books. And I don't like listening to podcasts. And I really don't like listening to you speak right now. I'm sorry, He's not letting us off the hook that easy. He says that there is much more to it, however, than simply listening and hearing. That we're called to go and do. And he uses simple illustrations just like Jesus did. He so easily communicates to us that when we're not doers of the word, it's just like looking in the mirror and walking away and forgetting what you look like. And so I want to invite you into a simple exercise this morning to demonstrate what I think James means. So I want to ask everybody to just very simply close your eyes. And I know some of you might be too cool to close your eyes, and that's cool. I'm, that's, that's sometimes me. Close your eyes. It'll be a good, good chance to rest. Um, I want you to think about yourself. Just think about what you look like. All on the outer, this is the most superficial exercise. Think about what you look like. Your hair color, your eye color. Your height, your skin, your facial features, your nose, your ears, your mouth. And if you're lucky, I want you to think about your beard. Now open your eyes. Did any of you forget what you looked like? A hand, anybody. There's a hand, we'll talk afterwards. It's absurd, isn't it? You know perhaps better than anyone what you look like. You know every freckle. You know every scar. You know about every wrinkle. And just as there's no one here that forgot what they looked like, James points out the absurdity of being only a hearer of the word. And so when we talk about doing, this is where we get into tension. When we start talking about obedience and doing, for some of us, the hair on the back of our neck begins to stand up because the mere thought of the law brings to mind a ledger that God must be keeping of all the bad things I did and all the good things I did. And 
And when anybody mentions the law that James actually calls perfect and freeing, instead you may tighten up and say, don't put that on me, Ricky Bobby. Or for those of you who don't get that, don't put that on me, John. Don't put the law on me. For any of us, any time that the law is mentioned or you're asked to lean into the law, you hear the word legalism. And you know, all those things that church people just don't do. I grew up in an environment where more emphasis was put on the music that I listened to than was put on anything else in my life. I kid you not, more time was spent on standards and behavior modification than was ever spent on the character of God. It was maddening to me then, and it's maddening maddening to me today, when our view of the law is seen as legalism. Or maybe you're on the other side. Maybe you're so much into grace, and you're so immersed by forgiveness that when obedience in the law is mentioned, that you know, all you can think about is, it really doesn't matter what I do because I'm forgiven, right? Because grace will be there for you. Or maybe you think that the law is really all about the Old Testament. Or maybe you actually see the things that you don't do as doing good works. You know, as if it's good to, well, I didn't punch him. Well, I didn't cheat on the test. And I didn't call him every name in the book. So that that must be good, right? So we often and easily forget that Jesus actually amped up the law a bit. And we read this in Matthew 5.17. He says, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So James brings us to this point of tension, like a pendulum that swings in either direction. The tension between law and grace is good, and I'm not going to resolve that tension today. Nor does James. In fact, as we read, we're going to see that they're ultimately tied together. And we have pillars in in this building, and There are pillars of faith and works that we're going to talk about today. So Joel's going to give me a hand setting up the stage here real quick. We're going to put a couple signs up that I want you to see. And as we talk, I want you to see and understand these pillars in this building. And we're going to see that they're tied together. And I'm hoping that this doesn't uh, clothesline me from behind. Good. That'll give me some room. I want you to see a physical representation of works and faith tied together. And I'm going to fix this. So before we read on, however, I want to establish a foundation. Okay? And as we talk about our works and faith, I want us to see clearly first, though, that we come spiritually alive by grace through faith in Jesus. Period. We need a saving, and we need a rescue. But we have to make sure we're starting from the right starting point this morning. There's nothing that we could have done, and there's nothing that we we can do that will bring us spiritual life. 
Just as physically, there was nothing that you did to be born. There's nothing that you can do to be saved. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 says, But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And I love this next part in parentheses. It ends with an exclamation point. I love, I love punctuation in the Bible. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace. And I love this word. It just keeps showing up in my life recently. His grace and kindness toward us. His kindness as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is the gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. So Paul makes it hard to disagree on where salvation comes from. He tells us what it is, and he tells us what it is not. He tells us that we're loved and that we're raised with Christ, and that it's only by God's grace through faith that we're saved. He tells us that by giving us life that future generations will see his kindness. He actually even tells us when we are saved. He says we're saved when we believe. And that means we don't have to know a date and a time and an exact place, though you may. He didn't say, he didn't say that it was a reward system. Why? Because he knew we would have the propensity to be cocky. He knew we'd strut. He knew we would boast. And he knew that we would have swagger. And some of you may know what swagger is. And I want to show you a video of, of just a modern just picture of what swagger is. Yeah, this one goes out to all you minivan families out there. Sienna SC in the house. Where my mother, father's at? Where my kids at? Where my kids at? Or where my kids at? Where my kids at? Where my kids at? Where my kids at? No, seriously, honey. Where are the kids? They're right there. You see? Oh, cool beans. I roll hard through the streets and the cold sacks. Proud parent of an honorable student, Jack. I got a swing in the front, a tree house in the back. My number one dad mug says, yeah, I'm the Mac. I'm the world's best nurse when my kids get sick. I make a mean gel mold. I perfected my trick. Back when I used to party as a college chick. Now I'm cruising to their play dates, looking all slick. In my swagger wagon, yeah, the swagger wagon. It's the swagger wagon. I got the pride in my ride in my swagger wagon. Yeah, the swagger wagon. It's the swagger wagon. Check it. I love hanging with my daughter, sipping tea, keep my pinky up. All the drawings on my fridge scored an A+. I'm an awesome parent. Right. And it's apparent. True. And in this house, there's no mother-father swearing. Straight owning bake sales with my cupcake skills. I'm better with the money, so I handle the bills. And I always buy in bulk. Ain't afraid of no spills. 
Every Mother's Day proves I'm kind of a big deal. So, so we get swagger. If we're gonna be, we're gonna have swagger over Jello molds and minivans. We can have swagger about anything. And I think we know what it means to have swagger. I, I know what it looks like in my life. I know what it looks like in the life of others. Most of us can smell it a mile away. And sadly, there are those of us that call ourselves Christ followers that still carry the swagger that Paul's talking about. All it takes is a conversation with somebody or a look at their Facebook feed and you see it. But thankfully, in his kindness, he knew our propensity for swagger. And despite our swagger, Paul doesn't stop. He continues to verse 10, and he says, For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things that he planned long ago. So he establishes, like James will, that A faith that saves us is a faith that works. It's a faith that is not idle. It's not stationary. It's not motionless. Nor is it just going through the motions. Philippians 2.12 Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I'm away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. So we see here that a faith that saves us is a faith that will work. And it will work hard. And this is really where my mind gets just blown. Because we find that the desire and the power to work hard doesn't even come from us. He says that it comes from him. This is such a relief. So I'm going to go where my simple mind goes with another illustration in light of these these passages. I want you to, you know, let's just close our eyes again because that was fun. So we're going to do another illustration. I want you to think about something else. Just close your eyes, even those that are too cool to close your eyes. And I want you to think about an ice cream sandwich. And since it's Asheville, this is a free-range, gluten-free, lactose-tolerant ice cream sandwich. I'm talking about the kind where the ice cream is held perfectly together by two soft, maybe crispy, whatever you like, chocolate or vanilla cookie wafer thingies. It's an ice cream sandwich only when we have those two perfect sides holding the ice cream together because otherwise the cage otherwise the cage free ice cream is going to melt and it's going to go everywhere but when the perfect sides of the organic ice cream sandwich are there we get the perfect ice cream sandwich so I want you to open your eyes and I just want to say that this elementary illustration describes exactly where we find ourselves in our life as a Christ follower On one side, we have God who rescues us, he saves us, he initiates our salvation. And on the other side, here he is again, fueling our desire and giving us power 
setting up in advance all the good things that we can do to please him. And in the middle, here we are in the center, giving us, having a simple invitation to follow him. In the middle, we're called to believe. We are called to be doers of the word, sandwiched by his kindness and his love, kept and surrounded by him very tightly. So you say, thank you very much, John. And now I'm hungry. I just want an ice cream sandwich. Can't do anything about that right now, but I know that you'll never look at an ice cream sandwich the same way again. So as we move back to James, in case you're wondering, okay, we've been in Paul, we haven't hardly even looked at James. I looked at Paul's writings first because I want you to see there are some that actually say that Paul and James contradict each other. As if faith and works are opponents of one another. As if you can't have one without the other or vice versa. So I want you to see that they do not contradict each other. And if anyone ever says that, that's a misbelief and that's a fallacy. So when we jump back to James, I want you to pay particular attention to how he addresses the audience. I want you to see his use of rhetorical questions. And I love this about his writing. He says in James 2.14, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Question mark. Can that kind of faith save anyone? Question mark. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? Question mark. James puts this in perspective with a few rhetorical questions. The answer are none, no, and nothing. And as if everything we read isn't enough, he continues in verse 17. He says, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and it's useless. Now, some may argue some people have faith and others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. And he says, good for you, exclamation point. Even the demons believe this. And they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that the faith without good deeds is useless? Question mark. So he kind of like a wrecking ball starts shattering all of our arguments that a faith without works is enough. In fact, he says that kind of faith is dead and useless. And like a teacher or a parent who's continually reminding children, he continues to say that a simple intellectual faith is actually comparable to the faith of the demons. So I asked the same question this morning. Is your faith simply intellectual? He puts a capstone on this entire chapter by the last verse. And it's a bold conclusion. And he says, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. And I want to ask, do we understand the gravity of this illustration. For me, this has been the most eye-opening statement that I've heard in some time. 
Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. And I know it's a bit of a dark picture, and it may be too soon for some of us, but let this picture stay imprinted on your mind. This is an illustration that should spur us on to see that the evidence of our faith is found in what we do. Let's see our faith the same way that James does. See that without action, our faith, it may be dead. It should spur us to self-check, to confirm that what we say we believe matches what we do and how we live. My prayer this week has been simply this. Lord, help me, help our church see the importance of James' words. I'm certain that my words this morning will be forgotten. I can barely remember what I heard last week, yesterday. I forget everything. I know how this works. It's my prayer that we'll remember the words of James. But my prayer is that the words of James will stick and that we'll hide it in our hearts. And by looking into God's word, that we'll be moved to move to take action to set aside idols, to put away the American dream. To be a body that is live, alive and not lethargic and not apathetic or inactive. It's my prayer that we won't show up on Sunday, look at ourselves in the mirror and forget who we are by the time we get to the parking lot. It's my hope that we don't come to church to clean ourselves up for everything that we've done all week long. Or come to church so that we can just get ready to do everything else and forget who we are the next week. It's not my hope or prayer to twist your arm to get you to do something. Not because there's strings attached. But according to James, the very state of our faith is known simply by looking at how we live. And... And band, if, if you guys want to come up, if, if you don't know Jesus this morning, I just want to simply invite you to grace. I want you to consider grace. And it's unpopular to say, but, but you're spiritually dead. And I know that that is a hard pill to swallow in our culture. Maybe you just need Jesus to bring you to life. And if that is the case, as the band plays... I'm going to be standing over here and I would love to have a conversation with you about that. If you're exhausted and you're like, John, I can't take one more thing in my life. I can't take one more person telling me what to do. I get it. I know. But I just want to ask you this morning to ask him for the desire and the power to do more. He will give you everything you need. He always does. Ephesians 3.16 says, I pray that from His glorious unlimited resources that He will empower you with inner strength by His Spirit. For some of you, for years, you have rested on your blessed assurance so much that you look like a lifeless, breathless body. You've heard it all. You know the Bible. You can even intellectually reconcile your theology. 
I know what that's like. You can look at your life, maybe, and see no change or no movement or no breath or no work. If that's your story, I wouldn't rest so well this morning. If you've been sitting in belief for a long time with no works, then you were invited simply to a place of repentance and a life of following Jesus. For some, you can look at your life and say, yes, my works and my beliefs actually do match up. And I say that is great cause for praise. Because we have nothing else to say but thank you, Lord, for giving me the desire, for rescuing me, for giving me the power and saving me. Thank you that I can see the evidence of my salvation in what I do. God, I just pray that these words from James will change us. That's my simple prayer this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.